Hey guys, you're listening to Metal Matters, a weekly Gimme Radio podcast. I'm your host, Mike Hill. If you like metal, punk, hardcore, or anything extreme, you've come to the right place. So subscribe and never miss out. Like we promised in the Van Halen 1 episode, Jay and I are getting together to do Fair Warning, which is a bit of a sleeper for Van Halen, but is nonetheless, I think, should be considered one of their classic records, even though it didn't maybe at first hit the financial um, records that the uh, first record did. Yeah, completely agreed. Um, This has long been one of my favorites. I mean, for me, it's always been the first record which we already covered, Fair Warning and and 1984. Those are the um, those are the ones for me. You know, Um, I like certain songs on the other records, um, but to me, the um, yeah, Fair Warning. 1984 and and the first one Van Halen one you know those, those are the that's the triumvirate right there yeah 1984 is, is awesome too and that and that was yeah. like their you know their kind of swan song with with Dave Diamond Dave you know yeah exactly or at least yeah for you a know while. I was thinking that that Van Halen singles box set I was mentioning to you earlier it kind of puts it in perspective because it's just the Diamond Dave era so and the singles release so it covers 78 to 84 so. It, what you what you know he diamond dave left the band in 85 so we're talking about like i mean obviously van halen existed before they put out the first record but as far as like public you know nationwide or global impact six years 78 to 84 crazy it's pretty mind-boggling if you think about it you yeah know? it was just six years they did all that you know also i think that uh as i'm diving into these older records i feel like the um turnover between recording you know the number of days that records are recorded in and getting the record out to the people has is like this really compressed time frame as opposed to what ended up happening later on you know like in the in the industry so to speak totally so some of the uh, i mean particulars about this record is it's a fourth studio album Came out came out on April 29th, nineteen eighty one. Recorded March through April, nineteen eighty one. Released on Warner Brothers. Recorded at Sunset Sound once again in L.A. Okay. Produced by Ted Templeman, and we mentioned uh, the last time he produced Montrose, which is uh, Sammy Hagar's former band. And you know, Sammy was destined at some point to be in. Van Halen as the lead vocalist after they departed with Dave and uh, the engineer was Don Landy and we can get into um, once we get into the actual production Landy was like Eddie Van Halen's um, ally in this uh, production effort I think yeah I mean you you could almost say like uh, I don't know what's the what's the word he was like you know, his, he was he was like do, doing his dirty work in a lot of ways. You know, <laughs> yeah. And uh, it was recorded in twelve days for approximately forty grand, which is fucking unbelievable if you think about it. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, it really is. Because I mean, a lot more was spent on records in those days, and I feel like it's. I think it's kind of impressive for a band 
to record. You don't hear of many, not bigger bands doing stuff in 12 days now. I mean, I, I personally subscribe to the Steve Albini school is that if you can't do it in a week, you, you shouldn't be doing it. But, uh, but, uh, um, you know, 12 days for Van Halen, that's pretty amazing, you know? Yeah. I mean, I had Steve Brodsky on, um, the show, you know, he was one of the first 10 episodes and, uh, cave in on their major label debut. They were in the studio for like months, apparently. And, wow. Uh, yeah. I mean, just, you know, I don't know what, what you'd be doing in there, but, uh, you know, his, his stories of their recording process were, were pretty epic. And then, you know, Van Halen's fair warning record was recorded in 12 days. <laughs> it's pretty <laughs> fucking crazy, you know? Yeah. And, uh, yeah. so the program length is 31 minutes and 11 seconds. And, uh, we're in that late seventies, early eighties, vinyl 33 and a third format for this record you know it was before the digital age obviously yeah 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 and that's and that's i mean and i think what is it like i mean if like 44 minutes they say you can get on a one record at 33 and a third before it starts like sounding like crap before you start losing quality yeah so i mean even in, even 31 they're like you know well under the threshold there you know but the quality of this material, though, it's like I don't, I don't feel like there's no filler on this record either, which is is awesome. And I think that might be like one of the upsides to knowing that you only have a certain amount of time to do your thing. You know that a lot, of, a lot of these older records, there were no fillers. You know, there was everything was like lean and mean because you only had like forty minutes of time to to get it happening. You know. No, that's a great point, man. And I, and I always, you know, one of the things I think about a lot is, you know, when, when the CD kicked in and it became like you could fit like whatever it was, 70 or 80 minutes of music, um, bands felt that they had to fill it up. And so you end up with these records that are like 15, 16 songs and half of it's garbage, you know? Uh, so it just proves that this was, you know, the, the original way it was set up, the original format, this sort of like, you know, keeping it short and sweet. It's a way to go, you know? <laughs> yeah. This record featured the classic lineup with uh, Ed Van Halen on on um, guitar and synths. This was the part of the introduction of using synthesizers was on this record. Yeah. Alex Van Halen on drums, Michael Anthony on bass and backing vocals. The voice of an angel, if you will. Yeah, yeah. And of course, and he- I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, and, and even if you won't. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, Diamond, David Lee Roth, vocals. Yeah. Yeah. Consummate showman. Yeah. You know, and, and uh, I, I always felt like, you know, it's funny that, that David Lee Roth back then, like, you know, in the 90s, I felt like being a front man wasn't as important. You know what I mean? And in some ways, I feel like Dave was the last great showman of rock and roll in some ways. You know, you think about like you had, you know, Elvis and little Richard, you know, you, you had, um, Robert Plant, you know, David Bowie, very larger than life, like personalities. Yeah. And Dave, you know, you had Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley, all these guys, you know, Ozzy. Yeah. But I feel like Dave was like the last of the great front man in some ways, you know, because in the 80s, yeah. you know, you had a, you had some 
in my in my humble opinion, you had these like pale copies of like what David Lee Roth was doing. And um you know, I, I'm not of the biggest fan of like the LA metal uh scene. You know, I like there's yeah. some bands I like, you know, like LA Guns, like Guns N' Roses, you know, that kind of stuff. Wasp, you know, but yeah. um but a lot of a lot of what was going on, I think, in the eighties, Dave might have been like a huge template for what was going on, but nobody was doing these like, you know, we talked about his kicks and spins and backflips and sword play and all this stuff on stage like he was doing, you know? No, man, and he, he really was one of a kind with that too because I I even feel like when you look at the Sunset Strip bands, even, even um, you know, any everyone from even Axel, like Axl Rose, uh, Cinderella, um, Poison, uh, even the Motley Crews, like all these guys, to me, I think Steven Tyler was the template for those guys. Um, you know, especially with all the scarves and all this shit, like they clearly stole so much from Steven Tyler. No one, I didn't, no one even attempted the shit that Dan and Dave was doing. You know what I mean? It's, it's like, it's like I was saying in our, it was like it, I was saying in our, in our, um, in our, you know, episode on Van Halen one, it's like, I think a lot of those guys in the same bands, they definitely wanted to be the guitar players. They wanted to be Eddie Van Halen. You know what yeah. I mean? And they tried, they tried their damnedest, but no one even attempted the Diamond Dave thing. They're like, I can't fuck with that, which is kind of how I felt. You know what I mean? Even though, like I said, I, I, I'm never going to get to Eddie Van Halen's level of ability. <laughs> but to me, I look at what Diamond Dave goes, and I just go, I'm not going to try that. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> definitely Steven Tyler on Guns N' Roses, man, with the scarves and like the blues kind of yeah. thing, you know. But I feel like the, the, the second or third tier bands, like that dude in like Warrant, you know, like these kind of, like blonde, like sexy guys, right? You know, like right. Were, were the ones that were trying to do the David Lee Roth thing, but didn't have yeah. like the athleticism to do backflips and like taekwondo kicks through the air, right. you know? Right. Yeah. Totally. But uh, yeah, so the the track listing on this is well. First of all, before we get to that, let's talk about the overall tone on this record because mm. there's this is like kind of a one-of-a-kind record for them. And I feel like every yeah. band has that one record that is a bit of an anomaly to the rest of their catalog. And uh, and this record is Van Halen's anomaly in some ways because, you know, the album cover. You know, yeah. it, it, was the, it was a part of a bigger piece called The Maze by a Canadian artist named William Kurelek. Yeah, and uh, it just shows like a bunch of just like dark shit happening, you know. And apparently, Kurelek was a patient in a mental hospital <laughs> when when he uh, when he'd worked on this thing. Yeah, and, uh, and so the fact that they found this and were like, "Oh, let's make this one section of this painting our album cover," kind of. I think um, there's an indication that there was a bit of conflict going on at this point in the band's career. And there's, you know, based on the stories and some of the research that both of you and I have done, uh, there, there was definitely dissension among the ranks. And there was, I think that conflict is what drove the darkness of this record. Yeah, it seems like that. And from what, from what I can gather, the, the, the choice for the album cover was Al's choice and that he was kind of, he was the impression I got was that he was kind of the guy behind most of the album covers as far as choosing the artwork. 
Um, I do, what I could not find out is where he saw the painting. Uh, and like, uh, because I found out that it, it, so it's still the original, it still hangs in, and I don't know if it was there at the time when this album came out in 81. Um, uh, it hangs in Bethlehem Royal Hospital in England, which is, you know, colloquially known as, as Bedlam. Um, and, uh, you know, which, where, where that term comes from. And, um, you know, there was a book that came out, uh, maybe 20 years ago about a patient at Bedlam. Uh, William Minor was his name, who was the greatest contributor to the um, Oxford English Dictionary. And he was in Bedlam, and he, he was a surgeon, and he'd committed a um, a murder. He kind of had a psychotic episode and, uh, and shot a random uh, stranger in the street. Um, he ended up in Bedlam, and that's where the painting is today. Um, and interestingly, I did a deep dive on this painting because I just yeah. found it fascinating. Um there's a sequel piece. Kurelek painted another piece. Uh, so as you mentioned, he was in the hospital, in the mental hospital in London in 1953 when he painted this. Um, years later, when he got out, he painted a sequel piece. Now, the original painting is called The Maze. And he painted a sequel piece, which is called Out of the Maze, years later. And this painting is, it's a family, and they're having a picnic in a, this idyllic countryside scene. But... So now the original painting is actually the interior of a skull, and it's meant to be the interior of Kurilek's skull. And you see different scenes happening in different parts of the skull. One of those, or a couple of those scenes were pulled out for the Van Halen cover. In Out of the Maze, the sequel piece, the skull is very small, and it's in the bottom left-hand corner of this field where this family is having the picnic. Um, and in the other, in the upper right-hand corner, there's a storm coming in on this nice sunny day um and that apparently uh represented a uh, a premonition that Kurilek had had about um nuclear holocaust wow um yeah so and and then and then some other things just some quick other facts so Kurilek died in 1977 at age 50 so four years before fair warning came out i there's claims now i, I can't imagine this can possibly be true but i found various sources that claim that this piece, the piece of this painting, the maze, was used without permission for fair warning. I, I find can't. That hard to believe, yeah. yeah, yeah, I find that hard to believe too. But I, it was in multiple things, so I, I don't know. But um, anyway, there you have it. There's the background. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, the nuclear war thing is interesting because uh, you know if you remember in the '80s, the specter of nuclear annihilation was like hanging heavy over the world in general. It's the Cold War and Nuclear holocausts were, uh, you know, kind of kind of like a uh, a big thing in the eighties. I felt like you know, there's all these movies like Threads and yeah, you know, where which way the which way the wind blows. Yeah, you ever see that? Yeah. It's like a cartoon about. I didn't. I didn't see that one. I just remember stuff like Red Dawn, and yeah. uh, and uh, you know, of course, you had bands like. Um, nuclear assault and yeah. you know every, i feel like every other album cover was like a mushroom cloud <laughs> in the 80s you know of like the, the hard and heavy bands you know yeah age of quarrel had the you know chrome yeah, yeah exactly yeah yeah that was about as literal as you can get with uh, nuclear annihilation yeah 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 so one of the things though yeah like we, we touched on it earlier was the deep conflicts that were going on that were starting to form that were starting to take shape 
at the time of the you know the creation of this record yeah and uh a lot of that i think was between uh Ed, eddie and, and dave yeah and yeah um, it seems that way you know and and david lee roth along with templeman they had uh this concept of keeping the band's commercial appeal intact and eddie van halen wanted to explore uh, more of a creative bent with the band and you know i mean and i mean he's a prodigy you know he's he's a groundbreaking visionary musician and dave's an entertainer and so it would make sense that dave wants to do the showbiz uh you know swinging from the chandeliers and stuff like that and eddie van halen wanted to go deeper into his own creative uh energies and uh get more introspective and everything so there was that initial um and for also for what i read too is that uh, there was also tension when Dave um, uh, between Dave and Eddie when Eddie married Valerie Bertinelli uh, because you know she was a TV star at the time Um, I don't know I don't even know if anyone remembers who she is these days but back in the 80s she was uh, you know kind of like a hot a hot Hollywood uh, TV you know star basically a star you know yeah and uh, I think Dave coveted that you know he uh wanted to be the first guy in the band to have like a, a movie star or a celebrity girlfriend or wife or something like that. One day at a time, one day at a time. That was, ah. I remember, I remember when that show was on. Um, yeah. And, and I mean, that was a big thing. I remember I was like that. And that's how I kind of, <laughs> so, you know, when you're a little kid, you, <laughs> you always had this weird, I always thought of her as like, you know, this woman who was married to Eddie Van Halen. That was kind of her, like her thing, you know? Um, uh, yeah. It's funny, man. Um, but yeah, and so there's like a story about, uh, what's the story? Like Eddie, Eddie Van Halen overhears David Lee Roth saying, <laughs> saying that fucking little prick, not only is he winning all the guitar awards, but he's also the first to marry a movie star. So <laughs> that kind of, that kind of, yeah, sets the tone, I guess, a little bit for what's going on here. Um, the, 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 uh, the conflict that's developing now between, uh, Eddie Van Halen and David Lee Roth. And, and also, apparently, uh, through an interview that's on uh, ultimateclassicrock.com, uh, there was a, a, a bit of a Yoko Ono thing going on with Valerie Bertinelli, too. Maybe not to the same extent that Yoko Ono right. did, but you know, she was critical. She was a little critical, adding her input into the, what the band was doing, which you know, I, I tend to not agree with that kind of thing. You know what I mean? Uh, I yeah, think the I mean, creative but, process should be an insular thing, and really, there shouldn't be any outside forces. Like, unless it's it's a, you know, unless that that opinion is solicited. I don't think I don't think anyone should be involved in that. Yeah, I mean, was it was Eddie giving her notes on her, you know, award winning performances in one day at a time? So there was this uh, this thing going on in the studio where they would work during the day, they'd track all this stuff. You know, and then at night, uh, Eddie enlisted uh, the 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 aid of the engineer Don Landy, and they would go into the studio after hours at four a.m. and he would redo a lot of the solos and some of the parts and stuff on the records. And uh, yeah, yeah, you know, Michael Anthony actually confirmed that. I think it was on this. Oh, actually, this was in uh, in the studio with Redbeard, an interview. 
where uh, Michael Anthony would was quoted as saying Eddie and Landy would pull all nighters, confer- confirmed that there was a lot of tension with Roth. So there you go. Yeah, um, it, and then eventually, uh, it's interesting because uh, after that, uh, Don Landy helped Eddie Van Halen build Eddie's home studio. Um, and you know, that whole situation of kind of like letting, you know, Don Landy, letting Eddie Van Halen back into the studio after hours is very reminiscent of, I don't know if you, I mean, I, there's kinds of tons of these stories, you know, over the, you know, annals of, of rock history here, but one of the most famous ones, uh, I'm sure you've heard is the, 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 the mixing of the live black Sabbath live evil album, um, which kind of marked the end of the first Dio era with Black Sabbath, where it was the same thing. Iommi would have the Tony Iommi would have the engineer let him in to remix, have bring the guitars up. Iommi would split. Dio would show up and tell him to bring the vocals up, and this kind of they went back and forth like that for like months, you know. And that kind of was like was the end, was the beginning of the end for uh, you know, or it was the end of the end really, because that was the last thing they did. Um, but yeah, that's what that reminded me of when I read that about uh, Fair Warning. There's even like microcosmic stories like that that go on, and I'm not going to mention any anyone's names, but there's uh, people out there that uh, I know you know some of these people, but I'm not going to mention any names. Uh, <laughs> where where there's been sessions for certain records where there would be two guitar players in the band, and there'd be two guitar players tracking the songs, but the other guy would go back and re-record the other guy's guitar parts and wow. uh, without even telling the other guy he was doing that. And then years later, this dude would find out about these things. So ego, oh, ego is a, ego is a terrible thing, man. Yeah, it really is. It really is. Wow. Not, not yeah. to, to quote uh, Charlie Manson, you know? Yeah. I would like, I would, I would like to hear, I would like to hear who you're talking about off the record later. <laughs> <laughs> There's another story too that I'm going to, I mean, I'll tell you that one later, but I, I, no one, no one reads needs to really under you know 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 who I'm talking about right now. Right. So, but let the uh, the innocent remain innocent, the guilty remain guilty, and no one needs mm. to know any different. So, fair enough. Yeah. Um, so yeah, let's just run through the tracks and. Yeah. So the song starts. Uh, the song. Right, let me let me. Don't want to take that out there. The record starts off with a bang with the song yeah. Mean Streets and uh, pretty much sets the tone for the rest of the album. Yeah, I mean, that song is a monster. Um, uh, so apparently, so I, this is what I dug up on this song. So apparently Mean Streets has riffs from two old Van Halen songs um, that they did they were originals that were that, that existed before the first album, I think that, that kind of never made it onto a record. So, and Eddie Van Halen did this consistently over, apparently fair warning was the last time he did this, where he would go back and kind of cannibalize riffs from old material and bring them in. So mean streets, I guess was the kind of last case of this happening um, where he stole riffs from two old Van Halen songs. One was apparently called voodoo queen. The other one was called she's the woman. Um, and that whole, that beginning sound you hear of him kind of slapping the strings against the neck 
is um, you know, a slap-based technique adapted from funk, which was this is the early '80s. So this is kind of a height of, um, you know, this is Rick James is huge at this point. Um, Prince is just coming up. Um, so this kind of that kind of um, music is very prominent, um, you know, in in uh, in other spheres, I guess. Um, and also, just an interesting note, uh, they start. Uh, mean Streets is the longest song on the record, and they start off with that, which is not something you see often. Yeah, no. It's, usually, it's like uh, this. This track would probably be like track three or something like that on a record. You know what I mean? Yeah, it'd be like the second yeah. or third track. The first one would be like this kind of like, you know, kind of more of like an intro. You know, then the the meat song will be like track three or something like that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Dirty Movies. A great, a great tune, yeah. yeah. Dirty Movies is next. And uh, this is actually one of my favorite songs on the record. Me too. Absolutely. Yeah. So cool. And so different from Van Halen. There's just like, aside from the title and the lyrics, the tempo of the song and that kind of throbbing bass, it's just a sleazy sounding song in addition to the sleaze factor of the lyrics too, you know? Totally. And you know what I meant to look up? I'm going to look it up right now. Uh, Why it's in quotation it's, marks? <laughs> well, no, I never do. So I never could figure that out. <laughs> Why? But the theme. Okay. So, oh, interesting. Okay. So I, if you remember, and it was around this time, it was so around this time that it was the same year. And it was just a few months later, September of 81, actually in my birthday in 1981, uh, Jay Giles comes out with Angel in the Centerfold, or Centerfold is a song, yeah. which is the same theme as Dirty Movies, which is the girl that you went to high school with uh, ends up in a porno. Um, same year. Interesting. Has that ever happened to you, that you knew a girl like from your high school class ended up doing pornographic movies? Anything like that ever happened to you in your life? No, not that I'm aware of, but I don't want... Have this happened to you? Yes. Really? Yep. There are these two sisters that I grew up with, both beautiful, beautiful. And uh, the one that was older, um, she was two years older than me, and her younger sister was a year younger than me. And I, I got to be really good friends with her younger sister. And uh, beautiful, beautiful women, beautiful. Like, and they were cool. They were really nice. But you can tell the older one had that... Uh, you know, kind of self-destructive, like, you know what I mean? Like vibe. You knew, you knew uh -huh. that like, you know, she was, she could have been like this really popular girl in high school, but she had that like thing that like kept her on the outskirts, you know, on the outside. And, uh, you know, she would associate with people that were, you know, a little bit more on the fringes of society. And uh, I remember a, a friend of mine, she, she lived like walking distance from where I, where I lived with my parents. And I remember uh, a friend of our, a friend of mine, we like would, we spied on her one day and we watched her get undressed in front of her, uh, her bedroom window. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's a little aside, but it turned out that a few years later, uh, she was in a film, an adult film. I don't know if she made more and I, 
nor did I actually uh, try to find this film because, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I, I would have, it would have bummed me out a little bit, I think, to see something like that. I, and I'm wondering now if, I mean, given, given what we were talking about earlier, how quickly things happened, like they recorded this, I mean, the, this album was, they were still recording it or at least mixing it or something in early April and it came out at the end of April. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So centerfold, Centerfold, Jay Giles Centerfold comes out September 13th, 1981. So whatever that is, six months later, seven months later, um, it is entirely possible. And I, and I'm never, I'm, I, you know, that Jay Giles heard dirty movies. Um, Jay Giles band heard dirty movies, Peter Wolf, or I guess that was the singer. Yeah. Uh, and, um, um, and said, Oh yeah, that like I had that experience. I'm going to, write a song about that too and obviously they're two very different songs but it's just a theme it's interesting that two songs with that same theme came out like six months apart from each other you know um i, I don't know it's interesting but I, the I 80s in general there was a lot of like uh jailbait songs and you know creepy totally. like like totally. predator oh, no. predator sexual oh. predator songs absolutely but 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 that's throughout the 70s but this is very specific this is like a girl i went to high school with ends up and i think in 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 obviously in centerfold it's a it's a magazine and i in dirty movies it's a movie but it's just interesting that it's like that specific sleazy theme you know what i mean yeah definitely (laughs) yeah yeah i I have to admit that i actually uh i I like some of jay giles material especially the stuff in the 70s i think it's pretty good uh peter wolf uh stepped on my foot once at a gig uh i saw so you remember kevin shirtliff from Scissor Fight. Yeah, okay. So he used to play in a band at a little bar in Porter Square. It's like a pickup band where they would do like old, um, like early rock and roll and blues songs. Um, and they had this this guy, this great, this older black guy was the singer. He was like in his 60s at the time. And this is probably, 20, you know, 20 years ago at this point. Um, who was great. He was a great singer. And they would do like 10-inch record and stuff like that. Um, so, uh, and Peter Wolf, I think lived in the neighborhood and he, I, one night I happened to be there just hanging out with Kevin and, uh, Peter, he was, he, Peter Wolf got up on stage with him and did a couple oh, wow. songs Damn. and, uh, I was at the bar when he was like kind of coming off stage and the guy stepped on my foot. <laughs> did you say, excuse me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he was fine. But I was like, oh, so it's like, you know, um, it's not, it was not the, um, uh, I guess it was not the uh, your, your everyday. The place was really. I wish I could remember the name of it. The bar was really small, so it was crowded. So it was not an unusual experience to have your foot stepped on. Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, but yeah, Peter Peter Wolf was the guy who did it to me. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, Porter Square at that time when I was living in Boston was a little bit out of my jurisdiction up there. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I didn't really make yeah. it up there too much. You know. And I want to mention that, you know, another thing I dug up was that apparently in Dirty Movies, in these slide guitar parts, Eddie Van Halen allegedly sawed off a piece of his guitar so he could reach the high notes for the slide guitar parts in Dirty Movies, um, which is, uh, I find that fascinating. <laughs> hey, man, I mean, why not? He, he, he's a fucking innovator, you know? I'm sure. He, yeah, you know, yeah, I could see him being like, "Huh? How can I hit these notes? I know. I'll yeah. get this sawzall and I'll cut this piece of the guitar out and it'll make it easier for myself." Yeah. yeah. There you go. Yeah. Then we uh, we come up on Sinner's Swing, 
where uh, yeah. David Lee Roth uses profanity in the song. He says, yeah, and she looks so fucking good. Yeah, and so I, I don't know. I didn't. Um, I, had he done that before or since in the Van Halen song, or is this the only instance? I don't. I don't know. You know, that's an interesting question that I don't know the answer to because I want to say that since Dave, being the guy who is very much aware of commercial success, would yes. probably refrain from using profanity in in any of the songs. And 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 that point, the the point of bringing this up is I wonder what Dave's mindset was when he was writing this song. Was he just like, ah, I'm just I'm succumbing to to Ed's creative you know impulses here so fuck it i'm just gonna like you know no one's gonna listen to this record so the hell with it i wonder if that was his mindset at the time well okay that could be one the other thing is this is pre-pmrc right so because that was 85 right so no you know he didn't have to tipper gore was not like kind of staring everyone down yet at this point uh and it's possible depending what order the songs are written on or what they were thinking of at the time i mean to me if they're right, if they're recording Sinner Swing and they've already got Mean Streets and Unchained and so this is Love in the Can, maybe they're thinking this isn't going to be a single anyways. We can do whatever we want. That's maybe, maybe, but you know, Dave. In my in my impression of David Lee Roth is that you know how like uh, you know Michael Jackson Thriller, like every song is a fucking hit. You know, right, right. I think Dave would probably be of the mindset that I want to make an album like a Michael Jackson record, but a hard rock record where every record is a fucking hit. You know what I mean? Right. So I don't know. Right. I just, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing because it's, um, I felt like it was a little bit out of character, you know? Yeah, no, I agree. I totally agree. And in fact, it, it was only, I, it was only when we, you know, when we talked last time, we decided we we're going to do this program specifically about Fair Warning that I kind of went back and, and really listened to, uh, like, Fair Warning, like, with, like, a special ear, like, for detail and everything. And it was, I think it was, like, the first time I really noticed, uh, it, not that he swear, I mean, I was aware that he said that, but I, it, 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 was a, it was the first time where I really thought, wow, has he done that before? Did he, like, I, I think that was, I, I feel like, I mean, maybe someone out there listening to this would I, you know knows more i'm sure um i mean all you have to do is go back and listen to all, all the material but uh i feel like this might be the only instance i'm gonna say you're probably right about that you know yeah 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 but uh yeah it's you know cool song like i said in my in my yeah. book in my book this whole record is hits but you know not everyone sees things the way i do you know right yeah <laughs> however hear about it later the track that closes side one is another one of my favorite songs on this record and yeah um, yeah i just yeah. that song's uh the lyrics in it are great and uh you know it's it's just like a just a cool song yeah no i think that the impression that i get is that like real van halen heads like the people who who you know bothered to to dive deeper than the singles or whatever that that is a like a fan favorite that Song. that and dirty movies but for what it's worth the dirty movies is another one um with those are the kind of like if you know um if you're into van halen you dig those tunes you know also like around the time that uh that i was you know for me as a young kid in the 80s uh van halen was a the kind of band that uh 
you know, it was like a dirty, dirty kid band. You know what I mean? It was like, you know, they were huge, but it was like people who like smoked cigarettes and like did drugs and like drank beers and, you know, drove like Z's and shit like that. Well, from where I'm from, those are the people who drove Z's and like worked on cars and shit were into this, uh, this kind of stuff, you know? Yeah. Yeah. We had the uh, same thing. Yeah. You know, and they weren't the, you know, the, they, they became like more of like, uh, I think later after 1984, it just kind of like, a, a more of a household name, I guess, you know, they were dangerous yeah. is what I'm trying to say in 1981 still. Yeah. 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 Totally. Now side two starts off with unchained, which is a banger, uh, a real banger. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you want to take away some insights on this one here? Jen. Yeah, I mean, well, first let me just say on a personal level, this is one of my favorite Van Halen songs of all, of all their songs, of all the records. This is this is this is up there in the top two or three at least. Yeah, it's it's amazing. I love this song. Um, so uh, the working title was "Hit the Ground Running," uh, which obviously we that, that's a lyric in the song, so that's not really uh, you know massive insight, I guess. Um, but so the interesting thing that I dug up, which I I didn't know, which I didn't know is. The song features uh, a, a guitar pedal called the MXR M's 117 Flanger. And apparently when it became public knowledge that this was the pedal that Eddie Van Halen used on Unchained, sales went, sales went through the roof yeah. of this particular pedal. Um, so, you know, that, you know they, they have, um, the company has um, Eddie Van Halen to thank for, um, you know, their salesmanship. I'm sure he got plenty of free uh, pedals out of the deal um and then so of course this song has the famous bit in the break where it, you know dave is going off in his thing like hey man that suit is you you'll get some leg tonight for sure that whole like awesomely goofy bit um and then then you hear someone saying come on dave give me a break so that's ted templeman the producer uh using like the talk back button there on the on the console and now, while it, this seems like probably to everyone listening, this seems like some you know weird ad lib thing that that they sort of like decided to include. It turns out that's not the case at all. Uh, that was that whole back and forth was meticulously rehearsed, and apparently there are pre-production demos out there where it's actually Roth himself delivering the "Give me a break" line. So it was all that was all that was that was all written and rehearsed. Uh, which is maybe a little disappointing for everyone out there, but uh, nonetheless, there, there you have it. Yeah, I, I remember listening to that song for the first time because you know that's Unchained is one of my favorites. I love the guitar intro, just like yeah, it literally sounds like he's just standing in a kitchen like playing the guitar riff. You know what I mean? And they yeah. just threw a couple mics up on him. But the uh, when I was a kid and I heard that breakdown, I was like, oh man, these guys are fucking crazy, man! They're fucking <laughs> going nuts in the studio. This is great, you know. But then, like, you know, a few years later, as I, I myself started getting into, like, being in a band and recording and being in studios, I realized that, huh, the way that song broke down seemed very, uh, you know, it, it's, it's like a breakdown in the song. You know what I mean? And then, yeah. you know, when the, the talk back, that, that doesn't, that isn't routed to the tape. You know what I mean? It's like... <laughs> It at the very, like the only way the talkback would ever end up in the recording, 
is if it was screaming through the headphones and right. coming in through the vocal mic. That's literally the only physical way. Right. The talkback channel would ever end up in a recording. So that that's what made me I'm like, oh yeah, this is a gag those guys pulled and but still yeah. still pretty awesome though, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. They kind of slow it down a little bit here, you know, get it a little sexy with uh, a yeah. push comes to shove, you know? A little soulful yeah. kind of vibe on this song. Yeah, now see, this is an interesting one because what I dug up on this is that so Eddie Van Halen is saying that this song, and you can hear it, that this song was inspired by David Lee Roth's love for dub style reggae, which is interesting when when you, the context of this record because now is is that Eddie Van Halen's way of like blaming? Does Eddie Van Halen not like this? Blaming <laughs> it on Dave, or is he just? I mean, is he just giving credit where credit is due? But it's just interesting that like. Avon Halen seems to be implying that he's going along with with David Lee Roth's vision for the song, but it's hard to know whether he means that in a positive way or a negative way. Yeah, I don't that's a good point. I, I would I don't know. And and just judging on the the stories that I've read about the recording of this record and the the state of the band and the creative rifts that were going on, this might have that might have been the case that he's like apologizing for it. Well, you know, we let Dave have his way on this one song. You know? Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So this is love. Question mark. Yeah. Question mark. Yeah. Um you know, I got I I I, I have to say I was um this song I think as far as like as far as Van Halen or originals go this is probably my, you know, it was, this, it was a single. This song was actually the, the first single, I think, from the record. Uh, and I just, I don't know, man. This song is not, uh, of the, I mean, they've released covers like Pretty Woman and stuff as singles that I don't, we've already talked about that. I don't like when Van Halen do covers. Um, but I got to say, for their originals, this is probably one of my least favorite singles of theirs um, as far as Van Halen originals goes. There's something about this song that doesn't, uh, I don't know. I know it was. I know it was a hit, and people love it. And I'm, I'm not trying to talk shit or anything, but it's just uh, this one's. This one's not my bag. How, how do you? How do you feel about it? It's definitely my least favorite on the record. Uh, even yeah. though it does have this like real sketchy vibe surrounding it, you know. Yeah. Um, but I, I understand why they would pick this as a single, though, because I mean, if you look at the album as a whole. You know, like, all right, the guy from the record label, their management, they're like, all right, we need we need to, like, uh, you know, these guys are massive. They're huge. They're larger than life. They're playing arenas. They're bigger than, you know, Kiss and doing all this stuff. And they're, we need something to put on the radio. We need to expand their uh, fan base. And well, let's see what we got to work here. We got Unchained. We got a song where uh, David Lee Roth swears. Uh, we got a song about a fucking uh, girl from high school who uh, ends up in 30 movies. Um, what, do we, what do we got to work with here? Oh, we have this track, So This Is Love. Okay. It's got a sing-along yeah. sort of chorus. You know, there's like, uh, you know, it's something we can work with. There's a hook. So we'll, we'll pick this as the single. So that's, it makes sense to me, even though it isn't that great of a song, in my opinion. I gotta say, I'm blown away that they, that this song. I mean, I get it because it's it's got more of a feel good vibe than some of the other records. But why was Mean Street not a single? I, I don't get that. Mean Street was not technically a single, which blows my mind. I mean, in, in a world, if there was um, 
a world of Jay Bennett's and Mike Hill's out there, Mean Streets <laughs> would have been the number one song on like, uh, yeah. you know, whatever chart you pick, you know, but th that's not the case, yeah. you know, and it's, that song yeah. might have had too much uh, claw, too much tooth and claw for a lot of people, maybe, you know? Yeah, I can see that. But it's interesting that the band thought enough of it to put it like first on the record, like we're going to kick off the record with this, even though it's the longest song. And then, I don't know, it's just, it's, it's, I mean, I realized that like, obviously, your record companies have more control over, you know, especially in this era, like what's what the singles are going to be and all that stuff. But um, I just think on a pure catchiness level, Mean Streets is just is a much stronger song than So This Is Love. But I, you know, I think you're right, though, about just kind of like it's a little uh, maybe Mean Streets is a little too down and dirty. I don't know. Yeah. Definitely not dirty movies. Like that couldn't be, never be a single in, in the world. Yeah, no, of course. Yeah, Sinner Swing, obviously off the table, and, and Dirty Movies is off the table, but. Um, Unchained, yeah, I mean, that's the, Unchained's got that crazy breakdown in it. You know, that that's not really, yeah. uh, you know. Well, that was the second single. Unchained was the second single, it right. looks like. Yeah. But it wouldn't be the yeah. lead, though. It wouldn't be the song that we're like, yeah, All right, yeah. this is our new yeah. record. Check this out, you know? Right. Yeah. 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 Now the the next song is uh, a departure for and, and also a harbinger of what was to come later on in Van Halen's career. It's uh, Sunday yeah. afternoon in the park, which features yeah. Eddie Van Halen playing synth, electroharmonic synth. Yeah, which was like a pretty. I mean, I don't know. I'm not like one of those synth nerds who knows when everything came out, but I think that was pretty cutting edge at the time. Fairly cutting edge, um, and. Uh, uh, you know, to me, what I love about Sunday Afternoon in the Park is it reminds me of um, like John Carpenter, Halloween, like that kind of vibe. Yeah, totally. Um, I can see that. Yep. And then to me, I've seen you know, I've always considered that song almost as the intro to One Foot Out the Door because then the synth continues into One Foot Out the Door. Um, uh, I've always kind of considered that as kind of one. I've, I've always heard it as one piece, I guess you could say. Um, but uh yeah obviously and then obviously yeah i mean there's um they use i can't think of diver down because i don't like that record but then they jumped jumping ahead jumping ahead to 1984 obviously the synth is all over the place and then all of obviously the whole van hagar era is yeah. tons of synth yeah it yeah, became very the prominent in, in their uh their instrumentation you know the synth yeah and uh, I, I gotta be honest yeah. with you i don't i like this song a lot because it sounds like real sinister you know and, and totally you know it does have that carpenter-esque like vibe to it you know but i kind of prefer when eddie van halen stays away from the synths you know and yeah and i like synths yeah. i mean i like you know at the time of, i you know i really enjoyed yes and king crimson and bands like that deep purple that used the synth really well but i think dave um sorry dave i think eddie should have stuck with just shredding on the guitar in my opinion yeah, I, I mean, I do like this piece a lot, but I mean, again, you know, when you kind of skip ahead to like even Jump, which is a good song, but it's obviously super synth driven. Um, and then obviously the stuff they did with Hagar, it kind of becomes this synth at some point. Like, I can't even think of by the time Sammy Hagar's in the band, it seems like the emphasis is almost more on the synth. You, you, you don't hear about anyone being like, oh, I'm going to learn the Eddie Van Halen guitar parts from the Hagar albums. Like, no. you know what I mean? It's always, it's always this era before the synth took over. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely, man. And, uh, yeah, by the time Hagar joined the band, they were, 
and in some ways past their prime as like a uh, cutting edge like hard rock bands like they were they were yeah. into into the world of of just massive you know pop music in a lot of ways you know and which is crazy to me because again going back to like the the sort of the tension that was apparently happening during this record where you know roth wanted to keep it commercial eddie van halen didn't Roth leaves the band, and they end up doing the exact the exact thing that Eddie Van Halen allegedly didn't want. You know, uh, it's weird. You know, yeah, it's a good point, actually. You know, but the song and the record ends with "One Foot Out the Door," which that's again one of my favorite songs on on the record, maybe one of my favorite Van Halen songs of all time. Yeah, it's pretty. It it's it. it it is probably the only example that like well at least i can think of uh where you, you uh, like i said you can the synth leaks into it you can hear the synth underneath yeah. one foot out kind of leaking in from sunday afternoon in the park and yet it's still a very straight ahead like van halen like guitar driven song that just happens to have a synth underneath it you know what i'm saying um whereas obviously later the synth the guitar took the back seat and the synth, you know, was up front. So um, it was kind of, I would, it would be interesting to hear to have heard more stuff like this, where they stay guitar, you know, guitar oriented with just a little more like synth accents, you know, but that didn't really, that didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that synth it makes the song like super heavy, in my opinion. I mean, yeah. It, I remember like around the time I heard this song, I mean, I, I've always been a huge deep purple fan and uh, you know, the machine head record has that song um, space trucking on it. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and I felt like the same, the same role that the synth played on that song. I feel like the synth plays on one foot out the door, even though like, you know, that's a way the, the Van Halen song is like way more like, like up tempo, like faster and, a little bit yeah. more aggressive and the, the purple song yeah. is like more of a groove to it, you know, but it just adds this like sinister, like layer to it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that, and that, oh, which we mentioned, uh, just a quick note that I found on that one is that allegedly, allegedly that was done live in one take. So take that for what you will. I can imagine like parts of that being live, like maybe the guitar tracks, you know, because yeah. uh, that and that guitar solo, that fade, that that makes the song for me. That the last guitar thing that's going on, like he just like fucking shredding and like yeah. And I feel like that that level of freedom probably was live of him just like going buck wild on the guitar and like yeah. I wonder yeah. how long the song went on for in reality because the song's a fade out. And like, I wonder if it yeah. goes on for like another two minutes of just Eddie Van Halen like tearing it up on the guitar. Yeah, no, I know. Get, yeah, getting know crazy. Know. <laughs> <I know>. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's like you know one of my favorite records, man. It's fucking amazing. Yeah, fantastic, fantastic record. So the singles were just uh, so this is Love and Unchained, and that was it. That's that's all they they were able to to put out there, you know. And, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it, yeah, it's, um, I still can't, uh, I can't get my head around Mean Street not being a single, but, you know, that's, that's the way it goes. Like, you can't, you know, um, I'm free, you know, it's crazy because I, 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 I mean, I feel like you still hear Mean Street on the radio and I, I seem to remember hearing it at the time, um, or maybe not at the time, but at least, you know, let's see, this record would have come out 
when I was five. I probably didn't really wasn't cognizant of what I was listening to until I was about seven. Uh, and I remember definitely listening to and enjoying Van Halen at seven years old. And I feel like I would have heard Mean Street on the radio at that time. But by then, the album would have been out for a couple of years. So maybe DJs were just kind of pulling tracks off or whatever. So I, for in my mind, I was actually surprised to learn that Mean Street was not a single. Um, but there you have it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's... Uh... Yeah, that they just maybe they decided like, well, we can't really work with anything else on this record, you know. Let's just uh, let's move on. <laughs> just a quick question, and um, did you have you seen that Beastie Boys documentary? No, no, I, I've heard it's good though. All right, well, the reason you know, you're gonna wonder why I'm talking about the Beastie Boys, but uh, I felt like Paul's boutique is is like the 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 mean streets for beast or the i'm sorry the uh the fair warning out of the beastie boys catalog that's interesting that you say that because i don't listen to a lot of beastie boys but uh paul's boutique is i i would say the only beastie boys record that i can point to and say that i um that I like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a good record. I think it's their best yeah. one, but that one is the one that no one ever, it came out and no one, no one liked it at all. No one pa yeah. paid attention to it. And, you know, even to this day, people kind of talk shit about that record, you know, and they, yeah, they, they, they talked about it in that documentary. It's not really a documentary. I, um, I just got a new Apple TV. Mm. And, uh, so along with that, I got a free year of Apple plus. Okay. So I'm checking it out, and that's on. I guess it's exclusive on Apple Plus. Oh, uh, uh, okay, gotcha. Yeah, so gotcha. I watched it yesterday, and uh, it's like um, some of them. Some some of it is like footage. All right, the the, the format of the show is weird. It's like they're they're uh, on stage, Adam Yauch and uh, and Michael Diamond, and uh, they're at this this venue called King's Theater, like in. I think it's Flatbush out in Brooklyn. Coincidentally, the same place that I saw Sigur Rós play, and I wrote uh, like a live review of the show for uh, the defunct uh, Clairvoyant website. Huh, yeah. okay. Um, the funny thing about that night was that uh, I've never seen so many white people together in one place as I did <laughs> at that show. <laughs> like... Yeah. And, and the, yeah, the crowd, yeah. they scanned the crowd at the Beastie Boys event at the same venue. And I thought, huh, this is the same kind of thing, man. There's like just, you know, mad, just like white people at this show. You know, it's just really funny, <laughs> you know. And um, I, don't know, I, I bring that up because they always talk about how like metal is like this kind of, you know, not a very diverse genre of music. Yeah, but I right. think that I've gone to metal shows and there's been all sorts of people at all the shows. You know what I mean? Yeah, I agree uh, totally. And um, uh, yeah, it's funny. I I did. I went to see the BC Boys live once many years ago when I lived in Boston, um, and uh, I remember having that same experience. I was like, "There's so many white people here." <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I got nothing against white people. I got nothing against anybody. But you know, I just making an observation. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but so anyway, Mike D and uh, Ad Rock are on stage talking. It's like rehearsed, and they're basically reading off a teleprompter. And then there's like these cues that would come up behind them on a, on the screen. And um, I didn't really care for it. I wasn't that into it. And 
I've never been the biggest Beastie Boys fan. I liked them up to a point, but they were not like they never really like like grabbed me. Like they weren't like my my thing, you know, ever. Yeah. But you know, I appreciate yeah. them. But you know, just getting back to it, the topic is that Paul's Boutique, I think, is their best album, and no one else likes it. And uh, you know, similar. I mean, I don't think it's that extreme. But fair yeah. warning no. was definitely the sleeper out of the uh, the Van Halen catalog. You know. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So I think uh, we did a pretty good job on this one, man. Yeah, it was good. I felt like that. I felt like it went. Um, uh, and now that I'm kind of more comfortable doing these, I feel like that was. I for me, I feel like it went smoother. I felt a little. I, I, I kind of felt like I was tripping over myself a lot when we did the Van Halen one, but this felt like felt better. Yeah, no, totally. Any uh, parting words on this record before we uh, kick this one in the ass, Jay? No, man. I mean, I think it's um, I, I, I really love it, uh, and I really, I really enjoy the opportunity to kind of dive deep on it, and especially like going down the rabbit hole with uh, I did with William Kurelek was really. Um, uh, it was enlightening and I, I wish the, the only the only thing I wish I the, the two facts that remain that I don't know the answers to still after we've done all this that I would like to know is where did Alex Van Halen see the painting and why is dirty movies in quotes <laughs> we might never know the answer to those questions yeah yeah, yeah. well that's so, it that's, if you haven't heard true. Fair Warning by Van Halen go out and listen to that record and you won't be disappointed yeah, amen. Amen. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Metal Matters, a Gimme Radio weekly podcast. Tune in next week and see what we have in store for you. The show is available on all streaming platforms. Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, etc. Also, be sure to check out Gimme Radio, streaming on the web, iOS, or Android. For one of the best metal communities, exclusive merch, interviews with artists, and so much more. I'll catch you guys next week. Take care.